0: All right, everybody, if you could find a seat. Uh, we are going to get into our passage tonight. If you, if you are new here, um, Sarah, who was up here earlier, she already said it, um, but we'd love to meet you. We'd love to say hi. Um, by the way, this is. I'm just going to say, it in case you're new here and you're like, uh, Sarah's not my wife, um, Sarah... I, I say that because there's actually been two people already tonight who asked me. So I'm just going to clarify for everybody in case that's confusing. Uh, she's not married. <laughs> she's... <laughs> okay, anyway, um, Sarah and I are good friends and we're thankful to be a team. And uh, my wife, Amy, is wonderful friends with Sarah and I'm so thankful for that. Um, anyway, we're not married in case there's any confusion. Um, Well, uh, I'm thankful to get to open the Word of God with you tonight and to see how He meets us. Yeah, let's get back to Jesus here. Um, We are in Isaiah chapter 46, so if you have your Bibles with you, um, you can turn to that spot. I'm going to see if this will not wobble if I move it. Is that better? Let's see. Uh, Before we get into um, our text... There's a question that I want to pose for all of us, for all of us, myself included, uh, that, I, that I hope you hold in your mind as we go throughout this, throughout this passage and throughout the topic tonight. And, and it's this one thing, this one question. Is what you want most in life worth it or worthless? Is what you want most in life worth it or worthless? Is what you serve with your life worth it or worthless? Because it's one of the two. It's one of the two. There's not really an in-between. You know, to give about a bit of context, in case you're new to us tonight, uh, we've been going through the book of Isaiah. And we've been kind of doing more of like a flyover than the scenic route. We haven't really been getting into all the little things. We've just been hitting the, the main themes, the main sections, the main message and ministry of the prophet Isaiah. And uh, what we've seen through this, and what we'll continue to see, is that through Isaiah, God is speaking to his people, the Israelites. And these were the chosen people. They they were chosen by God to be a light in the darkness, to be an example to all other nations of what righteousness and holiness look like in the the context of human relationship, in the context of personal and and communal identity. Uh, He's given societal structures for them to operate in. and, And most importantly, is that they are to reflect and show what devotion and love for God looks like. The one true God. They were chosen by God to be a people who experience a redeemed life in relationship with God. A redeemed life in relationship with God. That's what he intended. That's what he called them for. That's what he chose them for. And they were doing super terrible at it. Like really not good. They did a bad job. Bad job. They they were terrible at holding on to what God was giving them. And what he offered them most, at the pinnacle of what he offered them, the peak thing, actually the foundation thing, is that he offered himself. He offered himself to them again and again. And they repeatedly and habitually let go of what he was giving them, himself, to grab a hold of lesser things, worthless things, our passage starts in chapter 46, and we're going to look, go up from verse 1, and it reads like this. Bel and Nebo, the gods of Babylon, bow as they are lowered to the ground. They are being hauled away on ox carts. The poor beasts stagger under the weight. Both the idols and their owners are bowed down. The gods cannot protect the people. No, it's lowercase g, just making sure that's clear. And the people cannot protect the gods. They go off into captivity together. So, as stated right here at the beginning, right? Bel and who these are the gods of Babylon. And Babylon is the empire that God, Yahweh, the creator. At this point in the ministry of Isaiah, he's already declared, he's already made it clear that, that Babylon would be used to bring judgment upon his people. That Babylon would come and conquer Judah, the southern kingdom. And haul the people away into captivity. And and this was going to happen because of the people's obstinance. Obstinance, like I I did the synonyms thing, you know. And my favorite one was pig-headedness. They were pig-headed. Their absolute and habitual unwillingness to accept the truth. To humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, their wicked ways. Now, as a parent, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and this is just like so relatable. It's so relatable. Now, personally, for me, I'm probably for many parents, I guess. Sometimes I'm really quick to get angry with my kids. And it usually doesn't go well. I don't do it right, you know, but there are other times. There's times where where I'm slow to anger and I'm enduring their faults with loving kindness and tenderly receiving them and disciplining them to, to lead them down a better path. And that's my whole heart, that's my whole position and, and spirit. And even when I do that, there are times when it goes well, most times it does, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not received. It's not received. Even when I am in this humble, loving, patient, kind, tender-hearted spirit towards my kids, sometimes they still reject me. Like just before coming in today to hear, my son was behaving in a way that needed to be called out. It needed to be called out. It needed to be corrected. And I think my posture, my tone, my whole spirit was like full of this tenderness and goodwill. I, I was just wanting the best for him and believing the best for him. And, and yet, despite my gentleness and my patience, I was so patient and loving posture and appeals. He wanted nothing to do with me. He wanted nothing to do with me and he wanted nothing to do with correction. Like he was just flailing around trying to break free, trying to run from me. And That's the sort of obstinance. That, despite the patient, loving appeals and corrections of a father, this same exact obstinance is what characterizes the Israelites' relationship with their God. And, and it's not just like ten minutes with my son, where you know, like I had ten minutes to endure that fault until he eventually came around, and and I just waited him out, lovingly saying, "I'm here, bud." Uh, Can I just hold you? Can I just hold you? And, And eventually came around and we were able to talk about what we needed to talk about. And that took 10 minutes. But God, for hundreds and hundreds of years, God was so loving and patient and merciful to his people while they continued to turn to idol worship and neglect his loving correction and instruction. And the idol worship they were going to, the things they were doing, needed correction. It was so wicked. So, so seriously wicked. Like Bel and Nebo, these two gods that are spoken of. The gods of Babylon. They're, they're actually some of the gods that the Israelites had been turning to. These statues. And, and the worship of these two involved a lot of torturous child sacrifice. There were various forms of degrading and depraved prostitution and and all the terrible, terrible things that resulted from this sort of an act, this sort of a position to be willing to do such things. It was wicked. It was terrible. There was nothing good about it. They needed to be corrected. They needed to be called called out of this for their own sake, for the world's sake, for their kids' sake. But God... Tried to do that again and again, and they wouldn't have anything to do with him. They ran from him. They didn't want to be corrected, and they didn't want the one who loved them enough to correct them. At the core of idolatry, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight, is distance from God. The core of idolatry is distance from God. You know, I was right there with my son. I was just wanting to hold him and talk with him and help him navigate what was going on, what he was feeling, and 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 to help him uh to respond to it well. And my posture and my presence with him never changed. It didn't change throughout that whole that whole time from the beginning when I said, Isaac, we need to talk. To when he finally came back around, and in the midst of him flailing and kicking me, my posture never changed. And yet there was distance between us. He wanted anything, anything other than me in that moment. Anything other than to be with me. And so it is with God. Idolatry and sin are not just a matter of forgiveness, but of distance. And it is a distance that we put between ourselves and God, not the other way around. See, distance is the real issue with idolatry. That's the real issue with idolatry. There is forgiveness. There is in abundance. But what of the distance? What of the desensitization? The hard heartedness What of the stubbornness and disinterest? The self-centered nature? What of the patterns that are built through it? Like, idolatry. Idolatry is not some silly, like, oh, poor God. He doesn't get his rightful due of worship and devotion. Oh, no, he has no need for it. He has no need for it. But his desire is for our good. It's for our good. For for the good of our health, for the good of all humanity, for the good of our families, our children, our society, our friendships, for the good of everything. Idolatry distances us from God, and thus we are distanced from the life and love and security and identity and comfort and transformation. We are distanced from all that closeness with God brings into our life and flows through us into the lives of those around us. The best way for me to love myself, to love my wife, my kids, like you guys, (laughs) the best way is for me to love God more than I love you. Mm -hmm. To love God more than I love my wife, more than I love my kids. For it is in his love and his embrace that I am transformed more into his likeness. And there's no greater gift I could give or receive to those around me than to be more like Christ. So as we talk about idolatry tonight, I want you to see that the the distance is the real issue. The distance it puts between us and God is the real issue. So Bel and Nebo, a little history here. Let's talk about it. These are the gods of Babylon the nation that God will allow to come and take the people captive. But it hasn't happened yet. When Isaiah is is communicating this message, it has not yet happened, but God said it would through Isaiah. And so part of the message uh, that has been given in the chapters that precede this one, chapter 46, is that one day Babylon will come and haul you away into captivity unless you repent, unless you humble yourself and turn to me. You will be hauled away by Babylon into captivity. But even mighty Babylon will be bowed low in due time. You see, in chapters 44 and 45, the ones that come right before this, God declares through Isaiah that he will rise up a man named Cyrus to deliver his people from captivity in Babylon. And Babylon hasn't even invaded or taken them captive yet. And already God is declaring who he will rise up to defeat Babylon, to set them free, to redeem them, to rescue them. He says that Cyrus would invade and overtake Babylon, hauling away their gods, their idols, their sculptures of precious metal and gems as plunder and the people with it. I'm going to read a portion, a couple portions. I'm going to jump through it a little bit because I don't want to go through all of chapter 45, but there's a lot of good stuff in here. This is just a sampling. And listen what Isaiah says, what, what God says to Cyrus. This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue the nations before him, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name for the sake of my chosen Israel. I summon you by name. He's speaking about Cyrus. And I bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its Maker concerning the things to come. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. And he will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. This is what the Lord says, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. This is just a smattering of what's in 45. There's more in 44. There's some in 41. This this is all throughout what's going on here. And here's the thing this declaration was made through the prophet Isaiah sometime around 700 BC. In 536 BC, so like 150 years later, Cyrus the Great of Persia invaded Babylon, took the city, released the Jews who had been taken captive by the Babylonians with instructions to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Like, long, long. Before Persia or Cyrus was even a blip on the map, God declared it would happen and gave this great king his name. In a different nation, long before this guy's grandparents were born, God gave this child his name. He planned to empower him, to equip him, and position him to become a king, build an empire, to overthrow the global power of the day, and then release the chosen people back to their land. 150 years before it happened, God declared it would happen. And like to think at times, I doubt whether God knows what he's doing. Or that he has the power to accomplish what he's planned for me or the people I love. Back in verse 2 of chapter 46, we read, Both the idols and their owners, their worshipers, are bowed down. And these gods cannot protect the people. They're bowed down because they've been toppled over onto a cart to be taken away and melted down and used for just the material that they're made of. They're nothing. These Babylonian gods are useless. They're useless for protecting the people. They are useless. Nothing but mute idols, hunks of metal and wood. And they go off into captivity together with God's commissioning Cyrus He he hauls away both the gods and the people into captivity. And so what do we learn from all this? What do we learn from this? Well, God declares in advance that the day will come when the worthlessness of your idols will be revealed. Isn't that the truth about idols? They're worthless. And a day will come when how worthless they are will be revealed. And it's going to be painful. All idols are ultimately worthless, useless, ineffective at helping themselves, much less those who worship them. And it's only a matter of time until that worthless, useless idol falls over on the one who worships it. And I just want to make it clear, because I think many, if not all, probably have thought it or are thinking it. Of course, statues, graven images, they're useless. Of course they are. Of course they are. And maybe you're thinking like, man, those idols of humanity's past, psh, those people are so foolish. Or, or you look at the cultures or religions around us that still exist, but just aren't ours. And you say, ah, that's foolishness. You pray to that object. Of course, of course it's foolishness. But I, I have been truly humbled, and I hope that you are too, that the idols of our day, of our culture, of our religious traditions are just as useless and damning. Like that's the thing with idols. They never seem useless to the person who worships them. They never seem useless to the person who worships them. Uh, There's a man, Ed Stetzer, and, and in an article he wrote called Idolatry is Alive Today, he defines idolatry like this. Is it... That a 12-inch tall piece of wood or bronze can do something bad to us? Or is it that we do something awful to ourselves when we place adoration and attention that should go to God to other things? When it comes to idolatry, the danger is not in an item. It is in us. Like we all, every person, all of humanity has these innate, deep-down longings within us. And they come out in all sorts of weird ways. We have this compulsion to worship and seek wholeness. And these are, these are the longings and conflicts that, that trouble our hearts and from which humans have sought clarity. Uh, they've looked for power over them since the fall of Adam and Eve. Things that can only be fulfilled and met in relationship with God, the creator of the universe. And so when that relationship with the creator is broken, as it is for all of humanity... We clamor for ways to fill the void. And we have clung to some truly foolish things in trying to fulfill the longings of our hearts. Uh, There are things like this. Security in a chaotic world. Identity when knowing oneself in isolation is an impossible endeavor and we are surrounded by broken people who wound and harm us. Like, you can't know yourself in isolation. You can't. And and that's like a psychological, physiological fact. You actually cannot form an identity in isolation. You form it entirely in relationships. And so, of course, we're distraught with our identities when we're trying to find it and see it in the reflections of all these people who are so broken around us. And we ourselves are broken and harming one another and hurting ourselves and being hurt by people. And it's like, man, what is of me and what is not? Who am I? Who are you? We struggle with identity. Uh, We long for purpose when death and pain are inevitable. It's inevitable. And and what's the point if we're just going to die and suffer? What's the point of this whole thing? The, the author of Ecclesiastes brings so much attention to that fact. He just says, vanity, vanity, vanity. And he goes through all the things that we might chase in this world and, and recognizes and calls out, that's vanity, it's worthless. Because in the end, you're just going to die. In the end, there's just suffering. And he comes to the conclusion, he says, all is vanity except for the fear of God and to keep his commands. We long for comfort. We long for control in a disordered world. We look for moral guidance and justification. We're looking for what is right and how can I be made right? Or am I right? Or am I wrong? And we try and reconcile the two all the time. And we're, it's so hard when so much about me and this world is clearly so wrong. And it's just wild. It's wild. It's wild. With moral guidance and with justification, man, we find it in some seriously messed up places and ways. Like really messed up stuff. The God who created the universe and you and me can answer these questions. He can fill these voids and he does it in the most loving and honest ways. He doesn't force himself upon us, not for a moment. He waits. And he calls. He gives us the chance, the choice. And he has chosen us in and through Christ Jesus and given us the option to choose him back, to know him, to be with him, to be made whole. A human heart that is properly aimed will find the fulfillment of its deepest longings. It will find it. here's a portion of, just a portion, just a portion of what can be experienced in relationship and devotion to God. Just a few things. Like in time, as your your mind and your life are transformed by his presence and his love, you will be secured by his faithfulness. You will be identified as his dearly loved child. You'll be commissioned as his beautiful aroma to the people around you. You will be comforted by his power and his sovereignty. You will be redeemed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and you will be led into all righteousness by the Holy Spirit. This is just some of what he offers us. But it takes letting go of lesser things, other things, so that we can grab a hold of him, that we can be given him, that really that he can take a hold of us. We go on to verse 3 says, listen to me, descendants of Jacob, all you who remain in Israel. I have cared for you since you were born. Yes, I carried you before you were born. I will be your God throughout your lifetime until your hair is white with age. I made you and I will care for you. I will carry you along and save you like God will never fail you. Nothing in all of creation can bend his knee if he did not will it to do so. His people, the church, it's us, right? If you've put your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, what that means for your life, you're a part of his church, his family, and that spans nations, continents, history. His church, it is nothing for him in all his power to care for us and deliver us as he intends to do. And it is everything to his heart to do so. So what are we so afraid of in trusting him? What are we so afraid of in letting go of lesser things to take a hold of more of him and to let him take a hold of more of me, you, us? Like the things he desires to do in and for his people are nothing to his power and everything to his heart. What are we so afraid of in letting go and trusting Him? God says to His people, I have carried you since before you were born, and I will carry you till your hair is white with old age. I will carry you along and save you. This is the same fatherly care Jesus spoke of in Luke 12, 6, and 7, where He says to His disciples, He said, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are more valuable than many, many sparrows. When we understand that God has made us, and we are valuable to Him, then we can trust Him to carry us. And this is a worthy question that I want all of us to ponder. I need to ponder. I do ponder. I have pondered. Do you have to carry your gods, or does God carry you? Do you have to carry your gods, or does God carry you? It continues in verse 5. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Some people pour out silver and gold and hire craftsmen to make a god from it. Then they bow down and worship it. They carry it around on their shoulders. And when they set it down, it stays there. It can't move. And when someone prays to it, there is no answer. It can't rescue anyone from trouble. Like, they melted down silver and gold and they made an idol. And it does not answer them. It does not care for them. It only misleads them and draws them in, uh, to stoop lower in order to pick it up. And it does not free them. It only burdens them as they prop it up and carry it. It has no power to answer prayers or to rescue them from trouble. They made their idols from metal and wood. We craft ours from people and experiences and ideas. Still, ours are just as meaningless and burdensome. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, answers what an idol is in this way. He writes, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what, you, what only God can give you. When we look at the most important commands in the Bible, we see the first commandment of the ten, you shall have no other gods before me. And then Jesus, in his definitive statement, that the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he just throws in an extra one, and to love others as yourself. See, the most important commands in the Bible are aimed directly at idolatry. In essence, idolatry and sin are in perfect alignment. St. Augustine speaks into this convergence of idolatry and sin. At age 19, Augustine uh, read a dialogue by the Roman philosopher Cicero, in which Cicero stated that every person sets out to be happy, but the majority are thoroughly wretched, Truly, no one dreams as a child of one day growing up to be miserable, and yet many people's lives are characterized by conflict, frustration, and unfulfilled longings. So Augustine reads this, and he, he sets out to discover why it is that most people are so discontent in life. And his conclusion was that for most of us, our lives are out of order. We have disordered loves. Augustine was convinced by the scriptures and life itself, that what defines a person more than anything is what they love. He said that when we ask if someone is a good person, what we are asking is not what they believe or what they hope for, but rather what they love. Because the ordering of a person's affections births one's virtues. Any moment in a life when love for God is lower than first priority sin will, will be or already has had its way with us. Idolatry is not simply about loving bad things, but even about loving the right things in the wrong order. Now, my wife is wonderful. She's really great. but She makes a terrible number one. And I've learned it through experience. She makes a terrible number one. She's a great number 2, but a terrible number 1. My children are a blessing, but they can't bear the weight of giving my life purpose. You know, success in my job, in this job is very meaningful. It's so meaningful, but it does not come close in comparison to companionship with the creator. Being well spoken of by others is honoring, but but there but, but your your Approval is empty when compared with the affection of the one who knows my inmost thoughts. Like wealth is useful so long as it is a servant and not the master. Anytime something other than God takes the top spot in our hearts, it will lead to corruption and destruction because it is sin to have anything other than Him in that top spot. God declares in advance, that the day will come when the worthlessness of your idols will be revealed. It will happen. Uh, I have a friend uh, in my small group who says uh, he'd rather bend his knee than have the day come when God bends his knee for him. Mm -hmm. It's time to bend our knees. To recognize how worthless the things are that we might clamor for that are anything other than God. Is what you want most in life worth it or worthless? Two last verses uh, from this passage from 46. Uh, Verse 9 says, Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. And then the last verse of the chapter, I am ready to save Jerusalem and show my glory to Israel. Is what you want most in life worth it or worthless? Now, in my small group, I have a, a friend named Grant, and he's a good man. And uh, he's an entrepreneur. He started a business, and um, it's in finance. And so uh, he was a wise guy, and thankfully he was able to find somebody to help counsel him, to help mentor him in starting a finance business. So he has this mentor, and, and he told us this story the other day, and it just cut to my heart. Uh, he, his mentor asked him, Grant, What is it you desire most for your business? What is it you long for your business to be? Ultimately, foundationally, what is the purpose of this? Why? What is it you desire most, more than anything else, for your business to be? So Grant went away. He took some time. He worked on it. And he came back. Next time he got to meet with his mentor, he comes. And he's like, Grant's a pretty enthusiastic guy. And so he's like pumped. He's like, oh, man. And he just lays it all out. This is what I desire. This is what I want. And he's just like laying it out, all out. And the mentor looks at him after he says everything. And he's pleased. He's happy. He's smiling about all this stuff Grant has shared. And he says, "Okay, Grant, what's the next question I'm going to ask you? And Grant's like, well, of course. How do I do all this? How do I do this? How do I make this happen? And and Grant's excited, you know. And, And the mentor goes, no, 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 no. Hold on, hold on. That's not the right question. The next right question is, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want it? That's the next right question. If you desire to be with God, to worship Him, to live your life with Him and for His kingdom and glory, the next question to ask is not how do we do that, but how badly do you want it? I just wrote some stuff down, so I'm just going to read this off. Do you want to be with God bad enough to confess your porn habit and navigate the frightful shame of confronting your own weakness to sin? Do you want God bad enough That you are willing to sacrifice your lifestyle or aspirations or your prestige in order to be with the people he calls you to serve and love? Are you willing to look foolish or prudish in order to let God resensitize you to your moral decay and the moral decay of the world around us? Like, let's be real. We're all real desensitized. I heard someone mention the other day that like with with social media, music, streaming, movies, all this sort of stuff, like we probably see more like rape and murder and sexual exploitation and violence than our grandparents saw in their whole life. In one day, we probably see more than they saw in their whole life. We've been desensitized. Are we willing to be uncomfortable or seem odd to others in order to be resensitized? The things God cares about and wants for us in our hearts. Is He worth it? Do you want God bad enough to be uncomfortable, to be bored in prayer or scripture reading? And I mean, really, like, okay, following Jesus, He said, He made it clear. Like, we're talking about extreme costs to follow Jesus. He said, Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus died on a cross. He called us to die to ourselves so that we may live for Christ. And yet many of us don't even want God bad enough to wake up 15 minutes early and pray and read. Many of us aren't willing to be a novice at something like waiting on God in prayer because it's uncomfortable and I'm insecure. And so we move on to distracting ourselves with entertainment or tasks or food. Do you want him bad enough that you're willing to go there? to meet with God yourself, to give him time, devotion, to sacrifice other things and experiences, to let go of your thoughts on this world in order to take up his and close the distance between you and him. I'm confronted with this. Like I tell myself and God that I want to be with him. But the real struggle is how bad do I want it? How bad do I want him? How hungry, how thirsty am I for him? to be consumed with him, to be free and experience his simple guidance and the levity of his call and his friendship. My buddy Grant, right, he's sitting across from this man who just asked him, how bad do you want it? And Grant's an enthusiastic guy, and so he's like, I want it so bad. (laughs) I want it so bad. He's like, ugh. And the older man just calmly but hopefully looks across him, and he says, we'll see. We will see. I say I want God. I say I want to be free of idolatry that is so weak and meaningless in order to be closer with him. Time will tell. Our actions will reveal it. And I don't mean perfection. I just want to get that clear. I don't mean perfection. Not hardly. But rather what Jesus says at the start of the sermon on the mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. If you are hungry and thirsty for God, no amount of stumbling will keep you from getting right back up and moving ahead. It's certainly not God who's holding you back or holding you down. He is forgiving. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is right there saying, come on, come on. I'm right here. Let's go. Let's do this. I got you. I'll carry you if you let me. Nothing compares to him. He is worth it. Band, if you guys want to make your way up, um, how bad do you want him? He's worth it. He is worth it. Whatever it costs you, whatever you give up, he's worth it. I want to encourage you that all this stuff, transformation, uh, uh, rewriting patterns in how we think and what we do, it takes time. And you know what the first, is this adjective? Is this the first adjective when love is, no, that's, I don't know. Love is patient. Love is kind. Is that an adjective, patient? Would that be an adjective? Okay, thank you. I barely graduated high school. (laughs) Love is patient. It's the first adjective of love. God is patient. He's patient with you. And you have every reason to be patient with yourself along the way. One step at a time. Whatever you've got, give it. Even if it's, well, I'm willing to do this. Great, do that. And in time, be, seek, desire, hunger, and thirst to see what he'll call you to more of. He won't ever say, oh, you brought me this? Not good enough. He'll never say that. I think of Jesus when there's 5,000 people who are all hungry and they're all grumpy, because let's be real... We all get grumpy when we're hungry. And they're in the middle of nowhere, and Jesus is like, so how are we going to feed them to the disciples? And a boy comes up with five fish. Jesus didn't turn him away, not for a moment. He said, thank you, that's all I need. And he did what he had to do, and he took care of people. Bring God whatever you're willing to bring him, and he won't reject you. He'll say, welcome, my son or daughter. He is worth it. Let's praise him.